hear the word of God from Ecclesiastes 1 and 2. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. It's utterly meaningless. Everything, it's meaningless. What do the people gain from all of their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come, generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun sets, and it hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south, and then it turns to the north, and then round and round it goes. Everything goes back to its course. All the streams flow into the sea, yet the sea's not ever full. To the place where the streams come from, there they go back again. Everything is wearisome. More than one can really say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear is full of hearing. What has been, it'll be again. What has been done, it'll be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look! There's something new. It was here already long ago. It was here before your time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by the people that follow them. I, the teacher, I was king over Jerusalem in Jerusalem, Israel in Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless. It's a chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking can't be counted. I said to myself, look, I've increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also to madness and folly. But I learned that that too is chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. I said to myself, come now, I'll test you with pleasure to find out what's good. But that also, it proved meaningless. Laughter, I said, it's madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. My mind still guided me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the sun during the few days they have in their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself, planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks, and I planted all kinds of fruit trees. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasures of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers, and then a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anybody in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all of my labor, and this was the reward for my toil. 
Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. It was a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. What more can the king's successor do than what already has been done? I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise have made in their heads, have eyes in their heads, while the fools walk in the darkness. But I came to realize the same fate overtakes them both. Then I said to myself, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this too, meaningless. For the wise, like the fool, will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. So I hated life, because the work that's done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless. It's a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun, because I must leave them to the ones who come after me. And who knows whether that person will also be wise or foolish. Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil, into which I poured my efforts and skill under the sun. This too, it's meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all of my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it? This too is meaningless, and it's a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days their work is grief and pain. Even at night their minds don't rest? This too it's meaningless. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. That too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks, James, for being Job and the teacher from Ecclesiastes. So, thank you, James. Wow. Exciting stuff, right? Everybody uh, ready to go take on the world, right? Um, wow. The teacher. Um, before I start the whole sermon, I want to tell a story. About 20 years ago, I was an undergrad, and I was living. I went on a summer exchange program to China for one summer. I thought I was actually going to Croatia, and then they changed programs, and I ended up going to China. I didn't know much about it, just was excited to do my first international trip uh, as an exchange student, and we lived on campus in a dorm, and not the first guy I met, but one of the, a lot of the people there wanted to practice English, so they... Um, 
wanted to speak to these Americans. There weren't a ton of native English speakers on the campus, so they set up these programs where we got to meet different students. And, and I met this guy named David. That was his English name. I'm going to put his picture up. And David... Oh, sorry. I, I can't see the black screen. It's not working. Okay, David's up there. So that's David and me in front of the guest house where we lived on campus. I'm a very young man at that point. I've definitely aged a lot. Uh, and I loved where we lived. It was so hot. It was like 100 degrees every day, so you could be super casual. Notice I'm wearing just a plain white t-shirt. I can't. I'm kind of embarrassed even. But, but that's, that was my outfit back then, you know, because then you could just wear the same shirt every day and, you know. But I'm wearing the plain white. Maybe I had another shirt over it and I took it off because it was so hot. But uh, there I am with David. And you can take the picture off. But um, I, met, I met David. And the first question he asked me, he's a P, he was a PhD student at the time, about to finish his PhD program. First question he asked me, Danny, do you know the meaning of life? I, was, I mean, first question. I was like, what? Why are you asking me that? And then he goes through this dialogue that he almost had prepared knowing that he was going to meet someone from another country. And he's saying all this in English, which is pretty impressive. And he's like, I grew up in a small farming village from the very poor family. I tested well. And in my testing, I got to keep going to the better schools and the better schools, even some boarding schools. And I got to go to college. The only person from my whole village to go to college. And I got... I did well in college, got to go to grad school, got in a PhD program. Now I'm about to graduate in electrical engineering and I'm probably not gonna get a good job because even though our country is set up where you know, it's, it should be on, you know, I should get a good job because of you know, the, the way our country structure is, my parents don't have clout, so I'm not gonna get a good job. And a lot of my classmates who didn't study hard or work hard are gonna get get ahead and I'm gonna and he was really struggling he's like I toiled and I struggled and I did all these things and here I am and I don't know what I, why I did all this and he's like you're from another country maybe you guys have the answers because whatever I've been taught didn't satisfy me I didn't, didn't get the answer so do you know what the meaning of life is and that day changed my life I actually keep his picture up on my desk as a reminder because I was more like the guy the teacher in Ecclesiastes I had a good life in America I didn't struggle that hard to go to college I graduated right before the during the dot com tech boom everybody I know was getting good jobs back then I mean it, I knew that my life was pretty good and I didn't even try that hard and here's a guy who was trying way harder than I did, who was just asking me the meaning of life. But more important than the fact that I got, that I was educated and I, I got to achieve and I knew that I could make a lot of money, was I had the answer to the meaning of life. And it had nothing to do with my education or my degree. It had everything to do with I had Jesus. I was fortunate enough to be born in a home where my parents taught me and pointed me to Christ, and like Tad today, I heard the good news, and I accepted it, and I had hope. And my hope wasn't based on my degree. Now, I had struggled, because as he questioned me, I started thinking, is my hope, and do I only love God, because my life is pretty much set? I made good grades, I got into the school I wanted to, I'm 
doing well. I know I'll get a job when I graduate. So am I, like Job, the story of Job, am I only satisfied because of this? And if God were to take this stuff away, like, like he did with David, like my life wasn't as good, could I still trust God? So I, I began to ponder. But the cool thing is David wanted me to tell him what I, why I believed what I believed and where I found hope. And I got to walk through the whole Bible with him from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And I, I just praise God for that opportunity 20 years ago. And I praise God for bringing David into my life. But that begs the question, why are we here? What's the point? Um, in Ecclesiastes, there's, there's an author of the book the guy presenting it, and he only talks the first sentence, and then he talks like the last four sentences. And then in the middle, he's talking about this guy named the teacher. So the teacher is the main person teaching in most of the book. Um, so in light of that, I don't know if I should, what teaching style should I do today? Should I have like the, this thing and the little table with the coffee cup? That was cool in like the 80s, you know what I'm talking about? And like the pastor, he's like... Or should I do the TED Talk where I'm kind of like, you know, like this? Should I be the kind of yoga guru type and teach you guys at the low level? Should I be the excited elementary or middle school, youth middle school teacher? I'm just going to be Danny. Unfortunately, I like the podium. I like to hold on to it and have my notes. So this is Danny today. Standing, oh, oh, captain, my captain. Anybody with that one? All right. All right. Dead Poet Society reference. Okay, so the teacher, we don't know who the teacher is. It could be Solomon. It could be another king in the line of David. Or it could be a Solomon-like figure writing later representing Solomon and the other kings. I tend to favor the, the latter, but... Either way, it doesn't change the teaching. But you have this teacher. And in Hebrew, he's called Kohelet. And in Greek, he's called the Ecclesiat, which is where we get the word Ecclesiastes from, which is also the Greek word for church. It's a gathering of people. So you have this teacher who gathers people together to teach something. And this author is saying there's this teacher who was wise, and he noticed all, he had a lot of resources and here's what, what he came to. And then the author of the, of the book, at the end, gives his conclusions on the teaching of the teacher. So that's Ecclesiastes. Now you guys know I'm a teacher at heart and I love handouts, so all of you got this handout. So I love this handout. And what it does is it shows you how the five books that... There's four books that are wisdom books, and then the Psalms contains wisdom, but it also contains... It contains everything that's in the Bible, everything that's in the Old Testament. It's comprehensive in its teaching. If you didn't get one of these, raise your hand because Chris can get you one. Everybody have one? All right. Thanks, guys, for getting them out. So if you look at this little wheel, you see Psalms deals with relationships with God. Proverbs deals with society and family. Psalms is how to live in relationship with God and how to live in this sinful, broken world. Proverbs teaches us how do I live together in, in, this, in society and how do I make sense of it? Ecclesiastes is like, why are we here? And it asks, as one commentator says, is there a glitch in the system? So that's kind of what we're going to focus on today. Is there a glitch in the system? Job is like, why does bad things happen to good people? 
Why is it not always fair? Why is life not always fair? And Song of Solomon or Song of Songs talks about how do we make sense of love and sex in the world. And guess what? Lawrence leaves on sabbatical, so I get to preach on that after uh, this one. So that'll be good. Oh, so this is good stuff. I would like for all of you to check over this. If you're at home, if you go on the Waypoint website, right below, there's a button right below in-person worship, and it says Wisdom Handout. So you can also pull that up. I did make one mistake. If you look at the end of the first section, it says Psalms 1 and 2 introduces the themes of the book carried forward by, and then the, it should say seam, like seam of your pants, Psalms, meaning Psalms that connect. Uh, for some reason, I cut that off on this sheet. But I want to focus on the bottom, and you see this little triangle? I actually, I didn't make this one. John Walton made this one, but I made the little triangle. And notice it's like a yield sign. So when you read Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job, I want you to yield. Proverbs are proverbs, not promises. You know, there's a way to understand it. You don't just throw out a proverb and say, that's God's principle for all time. There, there's a way that we know how to read the proverbs. But if you look at it, they all feed off each other. And they're all part of this wisdom literature collection. They weren't meant to be read in isolation. So I challenge you to, to go over this list. And I'm just going to just reread the, the four points on the bottom by Craig Bartholomew. And it, it just talks about how the main way we understand what wisdom is is Psalm 1 through 9. But then if we look at the, the summary of Job, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon, we come to this conclusion. Wisdom is grounded in the fear of the Lord. Wisdom is concerned with discerning the order built into the creation by the Lord. Wisdom focuses on discerning God's way in particular circumstances. Wisdom is grounded in tradition. Job and Ecclesiastes only make sense when they are read against the background of Proverbs. So I think it's really important to have this chart. That's why I gave it to you. If you lose this, you can always grab it online. So the teacher is teaching, so you have your handout. Go, go study it. All right. So we have this wisdom literature. This morning, I'm just going to focus on Ecclesiastes in these two chapters that we just read. And in doing that, I want to answer five questions. So we'll put those up. Is everything meaningless? How can wisdom be meaningless? Wisdom and folly and madness are about the same. What? Like, really? Uh, toil is meaningless. And then, so then, what is meaningful? So this is what I'm going to address this morning. First question, is everything meaningless? How can the Bible say this? Right? Aren't you taught the purpose-driven life, her, Jabez, all these things? You know, like, no, life in Christ is not meaningless. So how, how come Ecclesiastes is there? So let's look at this word. It's hevel in, in Hebrew, sometimes spelled H-E-B-E-L, but, but pronounced more like H-E-V-E-L. And it occurs 73 times in the Hebrew Bible and 38 times in Ecclesiastes alone. So 38 times in this book. So obviously the author of Ecclesiastes and the teacher are trying to get you to understand this. So what is it? It means, it has multiple meanings. It's one of those words with multiple meanings. It can mean vapor, smoke, mist. Those are all similar. Like you can see smoke and it doesn't make sense. Like you can't touch it, but you know it's there. It also can disappear quickly. Vanity. How many of you are old King James users? I think the ESV also carries over to that. How does, how does Ecclesiastes start off in, in the King James or in the ESV? Vanity of vanities. Right Now, unfortunately for most of us growing up in my generation, when we think of vanity, it's a mirror that our grandma has with little like, lights on the side, right? That, 
and it, had, it flips over and it magnifies. I remember as a kid when I saw that, and I was like, so cool, because one side is a normal mirror, and you flip it over and it magnifies. And I was like, wow, that's weird. And you can see your face really up close. That's also called a vanity in, in, in our vernacular. But this, this vanity is, is a little different, and we'll talk about that in a second. It can also mean idols, absurdity, and even paradox. Like this word can mean paradox and or tension, of a word we talk about a lot here at Waypoint because it's the Bible teaches tension. That sometimes it teaches multiple ideas that seemingly are contradictory, but they're paradoxes, but they're all true. God is completely in control, but I am responsible for, for my actions. Which one is true? It's a paradox. We live in the tension. You know, we're called to, we're called to go out and share, but God is also the one who saves people, right? There's a paradox. So what happens is, is the teacher is noticing some of the absurdities. He's noticing the myths, that, that it's short, that it's fast. He's noticing that there's vanity and idolatry. He's noticing the absurdity of some situations. And then he's also noting the paradox. So this is a cool word. It's very comprehensive. In the New Testament, it actually uses this word three times. In Romans 8.20, 8, it, it translates it as frustration. The whole creation is frustrated. In Ephesians 4, it translates it as futility. And in 2 Peter, it translates it as empty. So this is a cool word that conveys a lot. So that's why the teacher wants to teach us this. And Ecclesiastes is the book where we, we get to process some of these questions. So the teacher is correct, I believe. If you look at close enough at any part of our world, you see it can seem like a mist or smoke. You know, if I think about how long my life is compared to how long the world is, or eternity, it can seem, if if you really start thinking about it, it can seem short. But then if you think about how long I got to do this project or how long it takes me to mow the lawn or whatever, it seems really long, right? Wow, I got to do this task. So life can seem short, it can seem long, it can seem great, it can seem burdensome. What's a phrase we have? You know, time flies when you're having fun. But man, when you're sitting in class or you're sitting in a boring sermon, time goes really, really slow, right? So I hope the sermon is boring, sorry. All right. And then, so there's this idea of missing smoke and the vanity is everywhere. I, I believe all of us struggle with it ourselves. And vanity is, is just excessive pride in one's appearance or achievement um, or the quality of being worthless are futile. It even, it even created two words in English, but I think both of those essence of those words are, are real. So the, the teacher is right and the, about vanity. He's right about idols. There are idols everywhere. People are always chasing something, the next thing. We're never satisfied. Sometimes we keep thinking, if I just get this, I'll be happy. So the teacher is identifying these things in this, in this first statement. Everything is meaningless. And then it, there's absurdities. How many of you like to read memes that show contradictions? They're like, kind of, it's funny, you know, if this is true, then this, or why do people do that? You know, making fun of memes show some of the, I mean, sometimes they're cruel and wrong, but some, sometimes they're accurate and they're showing the absurdity of the world we live in and the hypocrisy. Not everybody is consistent all the time. All of us, 
will say one thing and do another, or if, you know, none of us can be 100% consistent. And that's why as the church, we have to be brothers and sisters with each other. We have to love each other. We have to just know that we're all fleshing this thing out. But the teacher is able to identify all this stuff. And finally, the teacher identifies this paradox that even with good things, the things of God, there's paradox. You know, why does the good guy get away with it and the bad guy not get it, get, you know, get off the hook? I mean, why, sorry, I messed that up. But why does the good guy get, get punished or the bad result and the bad guy gets the good result? How do we live in this broken, fallen world filled with smoke and vanity and idols and emptiness and absurdity and paradox? That's the question. Is everything meaningless? And at times, if you look hard enough, you might come to this conclusion. And that's okay. The Bible lets us wrestle. You, Christian, being a Christian doesn't mean you're confident all the time and you always have all the answers and you never struggle. Actually, if that's your reality, you're probably, don't, you're probably not really seeking God and, and trying to enter into the brokenness. Because if, you, if you're really seeking God, there's going to be some tension. You're going to be upset with God and you're going to be upset with the brokenness in the world. And it's not going to make sense. So if you're totally, if everything's kind of working out, maybe you're not really diving deep into the things that God is calling us to. But as you dive deep, you, you feel this sense of meaninglessness. So the teacher continues on and saying that wisdom is meaningless. Now, remember we studied the book of Proverbs already at Waypoint, and you've probably said it before. Proverbs seems to say wisdom is the ultimate goal, right? Seek wisdom. Now the Ecclesiastes is saying it's meaningless. So question two is, how can wisdom be meaningless? Let's look at verse 16. He says, I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much wisdom, much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also madness and folly. I wanted to name the sermon series Wisdom, Madness, and Folly because I thought, you know, it's, it's interesting. Isn't that life? Wisdom, madness, and folly? Sometimes I feel that way. But I learned that this too is chasing after the wind. So he's even saying, like, pursuing it is, is meaningless. And then in verse 18, for which, with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. This is a very profound statement. And he keeps going. He says, I said to myself, come on, I will test with pleasure to find out what is good. So instead of like dealing with all the knowledge and grief, he's like, okay, I'll just go to pleasure. How many of you guys do that? You read a bunch of stuff. You hear about all the bad things going on in the world. All right, let me just go hang out with my friends. Maybe that'll solve it. And he said, but that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. No, I'm not saying don't laugh. Actually, at Waypoint, we really want to encourage you to laugh. But this is just his thoughts. Uh, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the, the few days of their life. So I'm going to go back to that verse 18. He says, for with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. How many of you feel that? Like the teacher's on to something here. I feel like this a lot, especially in the era of instant news. Like if you just got on my phone this morning and just scrolled the news, I could hear about earthquakes, I could hear about 
bad things, you know, all over the world. Not just stuff happening in Durham Chapel Hill, but all over the world. And it, it overwhelms me. It shows, I, I mean, I could learn about knowledge of all the good. I could hear about good things that are going on in the world. You know, remember when the pandemic first hit and John Krasinski came out with some good news? That was a cool thing, right? Trying to find good news in the midst of, you know, trying to figure out this pandemic. But also, there's just lots of brokenness. And like the teacher, if we look closely at all of it, it's just overwhelming. And this is a side note, but sometimes when I think about Jesus, it comforts me that Jesus went to bed every night, knowing there were people that weren't healed around him. He knew his father had a will for him in his life, and he died knowing that the Spirit would be poured out and his will would be accomplished in the world. But he, he could go to sleep at night with the knowledge that the world was still broken. And, and sometimes I think we need to... It's okay to acknowledge, like the teacher, that it's overwhelming. And we, that we need someone to help. We need to know how to live in the broken world. And the cool thing is we have Jesus and we have His Spirit. But the teacher is just identifying the problem. And he moves on. So he makes the problem even bigger if it wasn't big enough. And the whole book of Ecclesiastes is it keeps adding on to the more things. If you look deeply at them in the world, you'll see how meaningless or apparently meaningless or absurd that it could be without hope in Christ. Without hope in the Lord. He goes on to say, this is my third point. Wisdom, folly, and madness are all about the same. What? I put the what there. Because I'm like, really, Bible? Really, God? This seems to be a complete paradox, a complete, almost, it doesn't even seem to be a paradox. It just seems to be a contradiction with Proverbs and a lot of the Old Testament. Here's what the teacher says. This is verse 12. Then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. What more can the king's successor do than what has already been done? Then I said to myself, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this too is meaningless. For the wise, like the fool, will, will not be long remembered. For the days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. How many of you have ever seen the movie Hidden Figures? Pretty cool movie. I think until that movie came out, like only like a handful of scientists even knew who those people were. You know, part of it was racism, let's call a spade a spade, but also part of it was, unless certain you get up in certain channels of history, lots of people who do lots of great things don't get acknowledged. I mean, and that's kind of what the teacher's saying. He's like, all these people toil hard, and then even their own kids don't care. You know, that's kind of what he's struggling with. So he, we're not, the book of Ecclesiastes isn't saying if he's right or wrong. It's just, it's just saying this really smart guy analyzed who had a lot and God gave him a lot and achieved a lot is reflecting and saying, wow, you know, some of those pursuits I had were vanity, were idolatrous, even absurd. He's just trying to make sense of it all. Now, remember, this guy is not a guy suffering because bad things happen to him. This is a rich dude who has everything. And is still not content. This isn't Job. This isn't the, the marginalized person. This isn't the person suffering 
the book of Isaiah is talking about all those people suffering. This isn't that guy. His, his struggle is in the midst of getting everything, literally gaining the whole world. Ecclesiastes is not written from that perspective. It's not written it's from someone suffering or poor or hopeless or marginalized. But it's literally the exact opposite. And I think that Ecclesiastes is in the Bible to show us that seeking earthly treasures and gaining all the world this has to offer and seeking pleasure is an empty pursuit. There has to be a better way. It's not saying that the good things of this earth are bad. It's just saying if you pursue your life to do that, it's going to end up empty. And Hollywood and wealth, you can read about the Rockefellers and the Vanderbilts. The Vanderbilt kids like squandered away all their money. I mean, just crazy stories in American history about the first generation was like this poor farmer who, you know, raised up and worked hard. And then all his kids squandered everything and became a big mess. I mean, William Faulkner has a whole career out of writing books about, you know, I mean, Southern literature is, is about families and lawyers and lawsuits and, you know, there, there's something to what the teacher's saying here. And I think this is part of why Ecclesiastes is in the Bible, so we begin to process this. If I get everything, is that going to be good enough? Then he goes on and he says, toil is meaningless. And I didn't put a question mark on this because I think many modern people get this. Sometimes I'll hear a kid asking another kid, or I ask kids when I was a kid, hey, what does your dad do? Or what does your mom do? And they get, literally the kid's answer was, I don't know, he just goes into an office and like looks at a computer screen and does some stuff and gets some money. You know, like a lot of American jobs, not all, are kind of, you know, just pushing papers around. And, and you might feel like, is this meaningless? Some of you may be like, I want to go on the mission field. I want to do that or this. And, and we at Waypoint want to help you process this. We want to help you see that all work can be meaningful work if we trust Christ. And there's some really, a lot, this is kind of a new, a popular idea right now, and there's a lot of Christian literature out there kind of trying to cover this. Some of it's awesome, really good, really solid biblically. Some of it's okay, and some of it's, I would say, is a little off. But I'm going to put a couple books that might help you process this, but the conclusion is the Old and the New Testament say work can be meaningful. But if you, it can also seem meaningless. And we as Christians, people who are building Christ's kingdom, we, we, can, we can glorify God in all things. And all things can be meaningful if we do it for the glory of God. And I, and I think this is a very biblical theme. But I think the author of, the, the teacher is trying to show us that, that this is hard. And some of you may have felt it. Some of you right now might be on the verge of like, I want to quit. My, my occupation is meaningless. God, what are you doing? Why do you have me here? So that goes into our final question. What then is meaningful? And before I answer this, this will be the last point. One time I was in a bookstore in Hong Kong, not too long after that picture was taken. And it was a Christian bookstore. And they had a, like a Bible that you could give to people. And it, now what I, when I was growing up, it'd have a New Testament with Psalms. Sometimes the New Testament was Psalm and Proverbs. You guys know those little Bibles? This one had Mark and Ecclesiastes. So some guy in China 20 years ago thought, if I'm going to hand somebody something to help them understand who God is, they need Mark and Ecclesiastes. And we laugh 
But actually, after living there for a long time, it makes more sense to many of my Chinese friends, the book of Ecclesiastes. Because from their worldview, like we love Proverbs, because we're like, pull yourself up by bootstraps. You know, Benjamin Franklin is our God, you know, you know, cleanliness is next to godliness. God helps those who can help themselves. The Farmer's Almanac is almost our Bible as Americans. So coming out of like the good Protestant work ethic, there's nothing wrong with that. So Ecclesiastes is a little tougher for us, but for them, Ecclesiastes, so whoever made this Bible, I mean, they took the time to print it, thought that giving someone Ecclesiastes and Mark, maybe Ecclesiastes identifies the problem and Mark is the solution. Maybe, I don't know. I'd love to meet, the, I've, I couldn't even find that Bible anymore. I searched it online in preparation for the sermon. I'd love to meet the Bible society or the pastor, whoever came up with that idea and, and ask him or her, why, why did you do this? So Ecclesiastes 12, everything is meaningless, says the teacher, completely meaningless. And now it goes back to the author of the book. Keep this in mind. The teacher was considered wise and he taught the people everything he knew. He listened carefully to many proverbs, studying and classifying them. The teacher sought to find just the right words to express truth clearly. The words of the wise are like cattle prods, painful but helpful. Their collective sayings are like nail-studded sticks which shepherds drive the sheep. But my child, let me give you some further advice. Be careful for writing books is endless and much study wears you out. How many of you, we have a lot of students here that are, a lot of you guys are in grad school right now or undergrad, on your high school, middle school, yeah. You could show this to your teacher. See, it's in the Bible. Give us less homework. That's the whole story. Here now is my final conclusion. Fear God and obey his commands, for this is everyone's duty. For God will judge us for everything we do, including every secret thing, whether good or bad. Fear God and obey his commandments. I love the fact that he's going to judge, because we think, oh, that's bad, but that's actually good, because who's the judge? Jesus. What's the judgment? It's paid on the cross, so... So even this seemingly bad thing becomes a good thing in God's redemptive history. Now let's jump ahead to, to I, I want to just think about this, fear God and obey his commands. Matthew 28, 20, the Great Commission. Jesus tells them, go into the world, and he says, and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. So how do we follow the final Ecclesiastes thing? We follow the teachings of Jesus. John 14, 15 through 17. If y'all, I, anytime you read you and John in this section of John, it's actually y'all. He's talking to everybody, plural you. If y'all, he's Southern. If y'all love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father and he will give y'all another advocate to help y'all and be with y'all forever. The spirit of truth. This is for all of us. Keep his commands. And I want to look at one thing Jesus said in Matthew 16. He says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed on the third day and be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord. That shall never happen to you. Peter doesn't get the, the paradox that the Messiah must suffer. He's struggling with it. Like the teacher, he's like, no, 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 that isn't the way it should work. Jesus turns to Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. Well, you are a stumbling block to me and you do not have the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus says to his disciples, 
Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will find it. This is the answer to the problem of Ecclesiastes. For what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world? That's what the teacher had gained. Yet forfeit their soul. Almost every king of Israel forfeited their soul. Solomon himself was apostate at the end of his life. Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in His Father's glory and with His angels. That's the judgment, remember. And He will reward each person according to what they have done. You see? Jesus is, I, would, I would argue this is a direct link to the wisdom literature. Jesus is, is showing us what good would it profit a man if he gained the whole world and lost his soul. And then in Philippians 4, the passage that Tad actually talked about, that's how I'm going to end this sermon. Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Every sermon has to have like a, what should I do? I'm telling you, Paul tells us what we should do. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, Whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put them into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. And then this, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you you rewarded your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. He's talking about Job, he's talking about the suffering, and he's talking about the king in Ecclesiastes. Paul knows both sides. I have learned the secret of being content and in every, in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living with plenty or want. Or want. I can do all this through him, through Christ, who gives me strength. That's the solution. We're going to talk two more weeks about Ecclesiastes, but as we think about it, what profits a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? The solution is Jesus. The solution is contentment. The solution is delighting in Jesus and his promises and not running to empty idols, but being content in Jesus, letting the Holy Spirit fill us and guide us and teach us So what about David, my friend? I got to share the whole story with him. I got to tell him that my hope wasn't in my college degree or the fact that I lived in a country where I probably had it. I'm going to make more money than him. I'm glad, you know, that God let me be in this country and I'm glad that this country is, I'm able to do that. But I told him ultimately, whether I lost everything and by, if he became a Christian in his context, and he could lose a lot. It could actually be worse for him. But I said, I've learned to be content because I have Christ. Let's be content because we have Christ. Let's pray. God, wow. Ecclesiastes, you gave us this, this powerful story, this powerful testimony, this way of trusting you, this way of of looking at the world but saying, no, God, we can delight in you. 
We trust all things to you. Help us to just be content and trust that you are good and you have the best for us. And we give you all the praise and all the glory. We just, we praise you, Jesus. And we know that you are good and you love us. And we just give you this morning, may we worship you in song. In your name we pray. Amen.